Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. Moments before he opened fire, the gunman asked who was on the baseball field, Democrats or Republicans? An act of political violence at a moment of extreme partisanship. And what happens when a 400-year-old story about one of history's most infamous acts of political violence is adapted for today? It's Thursday, June 15th. Michael Shear, walk us through the scene on Wednesday morning. It was a hot morning, a humid, typical Washington summer morning. There's probably 15 or 20 of us out there, mostly congressmen, uh, a couple of senators. We get here about 6.15, 6.30. If you're familiar with the movie, remember the Titans? Yeah. Well, we practice on their uh, baseball field. They had come there to practice for the annual uh, congressional charity baseball game, uh, which is scheduled for today. Uh, but I was uh, on deck uh, about to hit batting practice on the third base side. Some of the folks are in the outfield. Some of them are hanging around the dugouts or at home plate ready to, you know, practice their hitting. And I hear a loud bam. And shots ring out. The first shot was kind of an isolated shot, and everybody goes, kind of looks up and says, hey, what's that? And, and I look around, and behind third base in the third base dugout, which is cinder block, I see a rifle. And then I hear another blam, and I realize that there's an active shooter. And then bedlam, people screaming, active shooter, folks sort of hitting the ground, duck and cover kind of thing. I run around to the first base side of home plate, and we have a batting cage that's got plastic wrapped around it to stop foul balls and hide behind the plastic. You know, that plastic's not real good. But the shots kept coming. Five, ten, fifteen shots in a row. The gun was a semi-automatic. It continues to fire at uh, different people. You can imagine all the people in the field scatter. Uh, at the same time, I hear Steve Scalise over near uh, second base uh, scream. Steve Scalise, who is the, the majority whip, Republican congressman from Louisiana, was one of the folks out in the in the outfield. He was out by second base in the middle of the field. Um, he gets struck by a bullet in the hip. So he goes down, but is moving and is crawling towards the outfield. The members of Congress who have sort of described this scene describe their anguish at seeing him go down, but unable to get to him, right? They can't run out into the field when there's bullets flying all over the place. So they're hunkered down. And I look up and there's a guy with a gun blasting away. Fortunately, 
It was one of the good guys. And what happens, of course, is you've got two members of Mr. Scalise's Capitol Police detail, his protective detail, who are at the game because he's a member of the Republican leadership, a senior person. Mm -hmm. They begin to return fire. What we finally heard was the the Capitol Hill police returning gunfire. And uh, these guys were real heroes, and without them, I think everybody would have been killed. In addition, of course, people are calling 911 on their cell phones, screaming, we're under fire, we're under fire, there's a gunman. So you also have the local police from Alexandria, Virginia. They also uh, head to the scene and, and say they get there within about three minutes, and they start engaging the suspect as well. Once we got the all clear that the shooter was down, we ran out to second base for Steve Scalise, and he had crawled into the outfield with leaving us. A trail of blood. Uh, you know, I'm um, sad that he was shot, but he actually saved everybody's life by being there because he had the two security details. And I'm telling you, I don't know what happens if if no one's returning fire, because even with two professionals returning fire, one of them, I'm told, even being shot in the end, was still protecting Scalise at the end. Mike, how many people were shot and what conditions are they in? So the latest we have is that there were a total of five people that were shot. That includes the shooter. The shooter was killed. The other four who were shot were people that the shooter shot with his weapons. And that includes Steve Scalise, one Capitol Police officer, a congressional aide, and this lobbyist who used to be a staff member in, for one of the members in Congress. So Steve Scalise was listed most recently in critical condition, um, hmm. having gone through surgery the others were uh, listed in serious uh, condition or better. And Michael, who is this shooter? What do we know about him at this point? So the shooter was a fellow by the name of James Hodgkinson. Mm -hmm. Police tell us he's from a place called Belleville, Illinois, a suburb of St. Louis. He was a home inspector, mm -hmm. appears to have been residing in Alexandria, Virginia, here in the Washington area for more than a month. And the most striking thing that we know about him, and we know this partly from interviews that we've conducted with his brother, mm -hmm estranged brother, it looks like, and also from social media postings. He was a frequent user of Facebook and other social media. So what we know on Facebook, for example, is that he appears to have been a very passionate supporter of Bernie Sanders, was virulently anti-President Trump, was part of groups that pledged to destroy Trump. In one Facebook post, he called Trump a traitor, said Trump had destroyed our democracy. At one point, Mr. Hodgkinson signed an online petition calling for President Trump to be impeached. And that was where he put the chilling comment, it's time to destroy Trump and co. Uh, we also know from some interviews that one member of Congress believes that he encountered the gunman. Hmm. This member of Congress had been at the practice, had left early. As he went to the parking lot, he encountered a person who said, hey, who are those folks in there? And he said, they're members of Congress playing baseball. And he said, well, are they Republicans or Democrats? And the congressman said, well, they're Republicans. So he asked which party? He asked which party. Wow. Mike, how are lawmakers from both parties reacting to what now seems, from, from your description, from all the reporting by the Times, to have been the targeting of one party? What are they saying? So you saw Paul Ryan on Capitol Hill. We are united. We are united in our shock. We are united in our anguish. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us called on the entire Congress, Democrats and Republicans, to come together. To my colleagues, you're going to hear me say something you've never heard me say before. 
I identify myself with the remarks of the speaker. <laughs> They're beautiful remarks, Mr. Speaker. Thank you so much for the sentiments that they represent. Thank you so much. I'm really struck because we spent so much time watching these congressional hearings. You know, it was just 48 hours ago that we had lawmakers who seemed to be inhabiting an entirely different reality, angrily debating the big issues of the day, which are so divisive. The president, Russia, the election. Are we at a point, Michael, where we only can come together in Washington after a tragedy like this? You know, I hope not. I mean, I think one of the things that has been lost a little bit is that when you watch those hearings and you see the angry clashes and one lawmaker yelling at the other lawmaker or grilling somebody from the other party, I think that what the public that's watching that misses is hmm. what happens when the lights go off and the cameras go off, right? In many cases, even today, those members actually do like each other, right? Or at least have some mm -hmm. respect for each other. But that doesn't get translated on Twitter, right? Or on Facebook. Or to those who consume Twitter and Facebook, right? Do you, do you think that these lawmakers who, are, who say they're coming together now and who may break bread and play baseball together after all the yelling and screaming for the cameras, how do they square what just happened with their conduct when the cameras are on? You'd like to think that maybe the members of Congress might assign some responsibility to hmm. their actions and their comments and think that maybe at least when they're on the camera that there's some responsibility to think about how their words might be echoing across Twitter and Facebook. I'm a cynic here. I've done this for so long. I think that folks in that position are really good at excusing themselves and saying, look, that's not my responsibility or it's not my fault mm -hmm. or whatever. My guess is that after the shock of this moment wears off and we're back to regular order, so to speak, I, I think the policy differences are going to be just as raw. And I think there's very little to suggest that the personal vitriol that is a regular part of our political discussion will change at all. Michael, thank you very much. Sure, happy to do it. We may have our differences, but we do well in times like these to remember that everyone who serves in our nation's capital is here because, above all, they love our country. The annual congressional baseball game, which the lawmakers were practicing for when the shooting broke out, is still scheduled for today. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton. Back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Two hours after the shooting in Virginia, Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, retweeted this. Events like today are exactly why we took issue with the New York elites glorifying the assassination of our president. 
That was a reference to a new production of Julius Caesar, one in which the slain Roman dictator looks a lot like President Trump. Michael Cooper, what happens in Act 3, Scene 1 of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar, the great war hero, is in his element. He's in Rome going to the capital. He's wearing his white toga and probably his laurel wreath. He's the man in charge, and he's on the cusp of taking control of all of Rome. Meanwhile, you have the senators who are afraid that their Republican way of government is about to disappear, that he's going to seize all the power, and that suddenly the senators will be completely powerless, and so they hatch a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Oh, Caesar! Hence wilt thou lift up Olympus! Great Caesar! Doth not Brutus bootless kneel? And suddenly, you know, right on the steps of the Capitol, one after another, they stab him to death. And the final blow is delivered by Brutus. Et tu, Brute. Et tu, Brute, then fall Caesar. Even you yeah. would do this to me. Right. And suddenly, the play changes direction completely, 180 degrees. And these conspirators who thought they were saving the Republic by killing the despot, mm-hmm. in fact, set in motion a series of events that kills the Republic. A bloody civil war breaks out, factions arise, hmm. and you know, even worse tyranny lies ahead. Michael, is there a line in Julius Caesar that stands out to you, even now? Well, given this week, you can't help but think of the moment when one of the conspirators turns to Brutus and says, how many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown. What do you make of that? It's a brilliant moment because on the one hand, Shakespeare is talking about the fact that he's showing something to London audiences 1,600-odd years after the event that it happened. So he's talking about himself. But I think he's also perhaps imagining a future for his own play, this has since traveled the whole world and been done in any number of accents and with any number of interpretations. All Rome was wild with joy. Julius Caesar, having conquered his great rival Pompey... My countrymen! Good countrymen, let me depart alone and for my sake, stay here with Antony. Hail Caesar! Hail! Only one survivor, sir. Ah! Throw him to the floor. What's a... Throw him to the floor. Oh. Why can this story be interpreted to fit so many different political moments? What is it about this play that makes it so malleable? Well, one of the brilliant things about this play is that Shakespeare doesn't tell you what to think exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never quite clear to what extent is he sympathizing with the conspirators or condemning them. To what extent is he condemning Julius Caesar or sympathizing with him? He puts enough on both sides of every matter that it's really fertile ground if you're a director who wants to impose a new new look at it. And directors have done this brilliantly for almost a century now. I mean, 
ever since 1937, you had Orson Welles and his legendary Mercury Theater in New York City on the eve of World War II. Suddenly they made Julius Caesar a Mussolini-like character, mm -hmm. and the play became about the creeping tyranny of fascism. There was even one at Trinity Rep about two years ago where Caesar was played by a woman who wore a white pantsuit, which reminded people, of course, oh, of Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. So tell us about the Donald Trump interpretation. It's currently being put on by the public theater in New York. Well, Oscar Eustace, who's the artistic director of the public theater, had in mind making Julius Caesar into a Trump-like figure. And so suddenly he has a shock of blonde hair. He has an overlong red necktie. He has a wife who has a recognizably Slovenian accent. Mm -hmm. He has a gold bathtub. It, it becomes a very Trumpian Caesar. What did you see that surprised you and appalled you? Appalled. Yeah, well, I was expecting it to be a classic rendition of Julius Caesar. I think the idea so was to look at this moment when all these norms of politics are being upended and situate the play in that world. I mean, they didn't specifically say it, but his hair... Blonde, reddish, had the tie tied too long. No audience member here. could see this and possibly fail to mistake who's being assassinated and what's going on. So, Michael, I want to watch this central scene of the play, Act 3, Scene 1. So the Trump-like character is yanked from a podium, and three or four men and a woman are they're tearing off his jacket. They're stabbing him from the front, from behind. He's, he's trying to kick them off. The scene evokes the assassination of our current president, and therefore it's, it's, it's hard to watch. It's shocking, and I think it's meant to be shocking. It's horrifying, and I think it's meant to be horrifying. It's, it's, a, it's supposed to be upsetting. It's supposed to be really upsetting, is what you're saying. Yeah. That, that's the point. You, you can't do it and not make it upsetting. That would be to misjudge the whole play. Hamlet said the purpose of playing from the first till today was and is to hold up as twere a mirror to nature, to show now, the age. Now, Oscar Eustace form and actually quoted that line from Cassius about the accents yet unknown in his program note because I think they anticipated that there would be some controversy here. And his gloss on the play is that Julius Caesar is a warning parable to those who try to fight for democracy by undemocratic means. And he writes that to fight the tyrant does not mean imitating him. And that's the thing about Julius Caesar is, although there's been an incredible uproar about the idea of having a staged assassination of the president in Central mm -hmm. Park, Julius Caesar is not the anarchist cookbook. It's not a pro-assassination play. If anything, it's showing the horrors that are unleashed when even if you think you have righteousness on your side, when you take matters into your own hands and do it, chaos, bloodshed, insanity follows. And I think that's the message of all Julius Caesars and the one that's being played in Central Park right now. That neither Shakespeare nor the public theater could possibly advocate violence as a solution to political problems and certainly not assassination. Now that being said... The play has clearly inspired violence in the past, and it's inspired assassins in the past. You know, John Wilkes Booth, not very long before he killed Lincoln, was in a production of Julius Caesar in New York City, and he was clearly moved by it 
after he had killed Lincoln when he was on the run, he wrote in his diaries, he complained that he was being hunted for doing what Brutus was mm-hmm. celebrated for. Similarly, there was, you know, Klaus von Stauffenberg, who was in one of the failed plots to assassinate Hitler. And in various accounts of that plot, the Operation Valkyrie, they say that he had a copy of Julius Caesar on his desk with bits annotated there. So while most people would read the play as anti-assassination, it still has inspired people who think on some level, you know, that it shows people trying to take arms against a tyrant. Do you think that maybe this version is hitting a nerve in a way the other versions didn't because it's too literal of a portrayal. It's too close to President Trump. Well, it got too close for Delta Airlines, which decided it no longer wanted to be the official airlines of the public theater and pulled its sponsorship. Mm -hmm. It got too close for Bank of America, which pulled their support from this production, but said that they would continue to support the theater's other work. Just when you thought it was impossible, liberal left-wing nutjobs in Hollywood and Broadway have reached a new low. It's become a rallying cry of the right. What was the reaction from the crowd? The liberal New York crowd. I, I think they accepted it and were fine with it. It was funny. It was entertainment. But to me, he's the president of the United States. It's he- gone too far for the president's family, but it didn't go too far for everybody. I think the public theater has seen an outpouring of donations from individuals who support their attempts to do, you know, do uncomfortable work. And, you know, the New York Times continues to be a sponsor of the public theater. This is a production that's transcended eras, as we've established. I mean, hundreds of years of time and has transcended governments and countries. Do you think there's something about our current political context that's making this even more upsetting than it has been in the past? Or have these previous depictions been just as upsetting for the audiences in their time? Well, I think this is a moment when Americans of all political stripes are sort of on a knife edge where long-time norms are being broken, politics doesn't work the way you thought it did, things that you thought you might never see, you're seeing. And so I think there is a heightened awareness and a heightened sensitivity and a kind of a combustibility to American life right now that makes makes it both a very appropriate time to watch a Julius Caesar and to think about it and reflect on it and look into how these issues have played out throughout history, but also can lead to strong, hyper-partisan reactions to it as well. I think it's a time that people feel like anything could happen on some level. And I think that's why it's interesting to see something, you know, a 400-year-old play about a 2,000-year-old piece of history Mm. can be elucidating and maybe even a little comforting. Art has something to say about the great civic issues of our time and to say that, like drama, democracy depends on the conflict of different points of view. Nobody owns the truth. We all own the culture. Welcome to the public. Welcome to Julius Caesar. Thank you. Here is what else you need to know today. 
The Times is reporting on new information that suggests the special counsel investigating Russia's meddling in the election is preparing to investigate whether President Trump obstructed justice. Special counsel Robert Mueller has reportedly requested interviews with three high-ranking current and former intelligence officials amid questions about whether President Trump requested their help in trying to end the FBI's investigation into Michael Flynn. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. Daily listeners often ask how you can support this show. The answer is through a subscription to The Times. It's the journalistic engine that makes this show. The Times is now offering daily listeners a free trial week of digital access. Visit nytimes.com slash daily trial to sign up. That's nytimes.com slash daily trial. And thank you. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit wampley.com to learn more.